0: As we come now to the time of the reading of God's word, the proclamation of God's word in the sermon, we find ourselves again in Matthew 24, as we are coming quicker and quicker to the end of Matthew's gospel. We're in a passage today that is perhaps one of those difficult uh, texts to understand, and we find ourselves in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. This is God's word. Jesus left the temple and was going out to him, uh, and, oh, and when his disciples came, uh, excuse me, Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came, to, they pointed out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, "You see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we ask that as we come now to your word and as it is proclaimed that your spirit would open our hearts and eyes that we would see the face of Christ and that would be encouraged through the gospel and that through Jesus, we would know the blessing of your presence. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen they said Matthew chapters 24 and 25 are perhaps uh, one of the most difficult passages to understand not just in Matthew's gospel but the entire bible uh, the the words of Jesus here are his final extended speech to his disciples right before his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And we know this passage, we call it the Olivet Discourse, because it takes place on this Mount of Olives. Now, there are several reasons surrounding this passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning and in the coming weeks. That make it difficult. One is the language. It's we're just not familiar with this kind of language. And Jesus is speaking of tribulations and wars and famines and destruction and general chaos. This is a a prophetic and apocalyptic language that he is using here. It's the same kind of discourse we see in the book of Revelation. It's highly symbolic And so it can be confusing when we first read it. The word apocalypse itself simply means an unveiling or an uncovering. And it's usually used in reference to some future event from the time in which it was written or spoken. And it can be kind of hard then to say, well, how does it unveil or reveal anything uh, when it seems so symbolic? Nevertheless, it does. It is, is, it reveals to us God's actions in the future. And as such, it deals with what we know as eschatology, the doctrine of how God will finalize his historic purposes in Christ in this earth. What God is doing with his people. Now, it's helpful when we approach prophecy, especially apocalyptic literature in the Bible, to understand that uh, prophecy presents several horizons, several events that happen, and they all tend to collapse upon themselves. So you only see one horizon at first glance. And it, it's that makes it difficult then to discern what is Jesus talking about? When are these things going to happen? And hopefully we'll understand that as we go forward. There are three things that Jesus is actually revealing to us in Matthews 24 through 25 that we're going to look at over the next few weeks here. Uh, One is the coming destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. We've already talked about that a little bit before. The second is the nature and the character of the period of time between Jesus' ascension after he's been crucified, risen in his ascension, and his second coming. We call this the inter period because it's between Jesus' advents. His birth and his second coming. And the third thing that we see here in Matthew 24 and 25 is the nature and character of Christ's return. That second coming coming as the triumphal king that he is. And all those three things kind of blend together. And so you have that flattening of the horizons. So hopefully we'll get some clarity as we walk through this Olivet Discourse. And you see, it's a text that's not meant to be feared or frustrating. Instead, it's supposed to bring encouragement to believers, to give them hope. It serves as a powerful reminder that God is still active and bringing to pass all that he has promised us in Christ. And we need that reminder because sometimes, sometimes it feels like evil and sin and suffering and death will never end. They feel so permanent. After all, we've lived with over 2,000 years of history since Christ's first coming, his first advent upon this earth. And in that time, we've seen much suffering and destruction and death and chaos. We've witnessed evil and sin at times run rampant through parts of the world, in conflict and confusion and corruption seem as if they are not disappearing anytime soon, despite the promises of God in the Bible, uh, wherein he says he will wipe away all tears and end death and suffering forever and restore joyful righteousness in his presence for all eternity. Like early Jesus, early disciples, it's easy to grow discouraged, to become disillusioned, And this may be especially true in our current moment in history, as it seems that our culture and society where we live is becoming increasingly hostile towards the gospel. It's helpful to remember, though, that our situation really isn't much different than those first disciples of Jesus. They, After all, they were still hoping for a physical messianic kingdom on the earth, They still had hopes of the defeat of the earthly powers like Rome and the consequent reign of Jesus on a literal throne in Jerusalem. But what Jesus says here is utterly contrary to that vision of the Messiah and his kingdom. And Jesus in no uncertain terms lays out the character of his kingdom in this period of time between his first advent and his second advent, that interadventual period. And what he lays out is an eschatology of suffering. It is a vision of his kingdom that clearly demonstrates what he will soon say to to Pilate and Rome. My kingdom is not of this world. This world is a mess. But the kingdom of Christ is not. Last week, we saw Jesus' prophetic discourse against the Pharisees. uh, Whereby he says that the temple would be destroyed. It would be left desolate. The presence of God would leave. And the destruction would soon fall upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And as Jesus is now leaving that temple area with his disciples, they pass by these beautiful, magnificent buildings of the Herodian temple complex. And the disciples point them out to Jesus with Jesus' words of the destruction of the temple fresh in their minds, coupled with their confusion about his kingdom. They say, Jesus, look at the grandeur of this building and Mark's account of this incident, they say to Jesus, look teacher, look, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Josephus the Jewish historian tells us what the temple was like in that time. He describes it like this and it was truly glorious. He says now the outward face of the temple in its front lacked nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it, to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. That is truly magnificent. We would marvel at that now. I mean, the disciples couldn't imagine how these beautiful buildings with all their magnificence would ever be destroyed. I mean, some of the stones used in the construction of this temple weighed over 160,000 pounds and they were as wide as 24 feet across. That's a big brick. The temple seemed permanent. You don't move stones like that. It seemed like it would last forever. How could it possibly be destroyed? And yet Jesus replies to them, you see all these? You see all these buildings? Do you not? Of course they did. They're trying to point it out to him. He says, truly, I say to you, there will not be one stone here left upon another. They will all be thrown down, which is exactly what happens in 70 A.D., The temple wasn't permanent. It wouldn't be the seat of power in Christ's kingdom because his kingdom was not of this world. Well, Jesus' kingdom isn't of this world, though. Jesus is still the long prophesied king who will redeem his people and save them from their sins and judge the world, all the unrighteousness of the world. And so as he leaves this temple area with his disciples, they come now to the Mount of Olives. And he sits down upon it. And in doing that, he's making a declaration. He's once again stating that, yes, I am the king, the Christ, the Messiah that you have been hoping for. You see back in the prophet words of the prophet Ezekiel, we read this. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And so the prophet Ezekiel, he's describing the glory of the Lord, departing the temple and resting on a mountain on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. You know what mountain that happens to be? Yes, it is the Mount of Olives. Jesus, the glory of the Lord, has just left the temple area, and he sits on that precise mountain to now proclaim to his Disciples, the character of his kingdom and how this temple will be toppling down shortly. His kingdom will not be one that is built of massive stones laden in gold, but all have a very different character indeed. It's not the kingdom they would expect. It doesn't seem like a kingdom of triumph at all. It'd be a kingdom where the temple lies in ruins. And so the disciples ask him, well, tell us then, tell us, when will these things be? And what will the sign of your coming at the end of the age be? They ask him, when will this happen? And what are the things that will point to it happening? When will this seemingly permanent temple come to its end? And what is the sign that we know it will take place? And so Jesus lays out for them the character of his kingdom during the time between his ascension and his return. And he does that here in verses 3 through 14. We see two aspects to the, uh, or levels really to this nature of that period of time, which we are actually in right now. Uh, the first is the cosmic level and that is described in verses three through eight. Jesus says in verse five, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. So he's saying in this time, this interadventual period, there will be many people in the world on a global scale calling themselves Christ's taking up the mantle of a Messiah. There'll be a lot of false Christs running around. They will claim to bring salvation from all your sins and all your sorrows, but they cannot. Secondly, Jesus says this world will be characterized by wars, rumors of wars or reports of wars So there'll be conflict of all kinds. Jesus says in verse seven, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. A nation here, It's not a nation like we think of it today as a geopolitical state. Uh, The word actually has more of the idea of a people group, a people united with common culture, kinship, and traditions. In fact, our English word ethnic comes from this word that is translated as people. So it's more of a sociological or racial conflict that is in view here. Nation rising against nation. Now, the word kingdom does have to do with an actual political kingdom or nation state like United States or China or Japan or Canada or Russia. And the point here is that this conflict that you will see and hear of, it's going to be diverse. There'll be actual military campaigns, but there also will be interpersonal conflicts. This conflict will range from hatred of one people group against another to Actual battles on battlefields between nations. Next on this cosmic level, uh, that as Jesus describes the character of this age, he says there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. So we have false Christs, we have conflict, and now we have chaos Earthquakes and famines are natural disasters, we know that. They they reflect the fact that the world is suffering under the curse of God because of our sinfulness. The shorter catechism of our church asks in question 19, what is the state of misery into which mankind fell? And the answer is this, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God. And they are under his wrath and curse and they are made liable to all the miseries of this life, including death itself and the pains of hell forever. The miseries of life. I think we all experience that at least as you get older, when you get out of bed in the morning, you wonder, why does my body hurt? I've just been sleeping. The miseries of life, the suffering. You see, suffering and pain might be small and and irritating like a mosquito bite, but it's also the big things we experience as well, like cancer and global pandemics. It includes all internal and emotional pain and suffering from depression and sorrow over loss and anxiety and worry and fears and frustrations. The chaos of this world is manifested to us in, in, in the natural disasters that we experience, like the, the famine and the earthquakes. They all tell us that this world is not right. And so we see in this cosmic character the very end of the world as we know it. And next, Jesus will give us now the the character of the church in this period between his advents. So we had the cosmic level. Now we see it in the church. And here's what he spells out. And it's just as harsh and just as horrible as what we see on this global or cosmic level. First, he says in verse 9 that you will experience tribulation. That is to say, affliction or persecution, It is suffering because one is a disciple of Jesus. And tribulation can simply range from being mocked or ostracized, called names, to actually being thrown in prison or beaten or even put to death for the reason or cause of Jesus' name. As believers, we are marked by Christ. His name is upon us. His name is written on us. Our baptism is a sign of that, that we belong to his covenant people. And when we confess our faith, we show that we indeed belong to him. And for that reason, Jesus says in verse nine, for my name's sake, you will be hated by all nations. Next, Jesus says that the church will be marked by apostasy and betrayal. He says in verse 10, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. There will be those who are part of the church, who have been baptized and marked as part of the visible covenant of God's people, who were never truly part of his invisible people because they have never exercised their faith in Christ. They had not been regenerated by the grace of God. They are the proverbial tares mixed with the wheat. And they will fall away from the faith, and they will betray their family, turning from the gospel. One of the reasons for their turning is the next characteristic of the church during this age, and that is that many prophets, verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So again, we see that there are those who come into the church and they teach error and heresy and untruth. And they lead people down these paths of unrighteousness. And this falling away results in yet another characteristic laid out in verse 12. That is lawlessness and cold heartedness in the church. In the church, lawlessness is a complete disregard for God's natural and moral law. It seeks to rewrite the word of God according to human standards to avoid the consequences of breaking God's unchangeable and eternal laws. And so we redefine God's institutions like marriage and family and the church itself. We can do what we want to do, whatever feels good. That is our new law that we have created. And the result of that is this cold heartedness. In other words, it is lack of a true love for God first and one's neighbor. The scriptures are clear that if we love God, we seek to keep his commandments, not rewrite them. And so there you have it. It's not a pretty picture. This picture of the time between Christ's birth and his second coming. The end of the world as we know it. But there are many times it feels like an end that will never end. Because that evil and that sin and that suffering and that death... Like the temple, like the massive stones and beautiful buildings of the temple, feels so permanent. How can they come down? How will they ever be destroyed? I mean, you feel that at times, do you not? You, you look at the world and you look at yourself in the mirror and you see your own brokenness and your own sinfulness and you think, will it ever end? Well, all the violence and hatred in this world, all the cities burning, the murder, the abuse, the rape, all the pain and the disease, the, 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 the fear of viruses we cannot see that impact our lives in ways great and small, all the evil and corruption from the highest levels of human governments down to our neighborhoods and even our very homes, all the wars that we see in the world from bombings to cyber attacks, every child who dies before they can take a breath, be either because of natural causes or because they were destroyed before they had a chance to, to live. Every child that goes to bed uh, at night hungry, every homeless person on the street trying to stay warm, every person who is shackled to addictions from drugs and alcohol to power and sex, It feels it feels like it's never going to end. It's all there and goes on and on. All the mental anguish that is out of control. All the miseries and sufferings we see even within the church. Will they ever end? People fall away believing the lies of false gospels proclaimed by wolves in sheep's clothing. Parents lament as their children abandon the faith. Others, because they cannot reconcile the suffering they are experiencing in their life or that they see in the world, reject the goodness of God that they once tasted of. And brother betrays brother. Others give in to the lawlessness of the age. They ignore God's revelation in his word and they replace it with a word of their own. And people's hearts grow cold as the church grows colder and further from God. Worship seems like it's not important anymore. God's ordinary means of grace is now replaced with program after program. Or the comfort of the living room couch. Comfort becomes more important than Christ. Fear replaces fellowship. Feelings take precedence over faithfulness. When will it end if Christ is really building his kingdom, where is it? And all this evil, this sin, this suffering seems so permanent. But Jesus tells us here, as sure as the temple will be destroyed, and guess what? It was destroyed. So all that evil is coming down around us now. This is the end of the world as we know it. In other words, this is what the end looks like, exactly what we are living in and have been living in for the past 2,000 plus years. The fact that we experience all of this now is pointing and telling us to the fact that we are in this period Jesus is describing here in Matthew 24. In fact, there's two key things he says in this text that help us understand what is going on in the world and the church. First, he says in verse six, that though you'll hear of the wars and the rumors of the wars, though you'll see the conflict, the chaos, the end, notice what he says, the end is not yet. In other words, that finishing, that final fulfillment, that Final filling of the cup. It's not completed yet. God is still at work. The conflict, the chaos, the false Christ, the betrayal, tribulation, death, and suffering. They are normal and God is working through them. But the final end of them is not yet. It is coming. And then second, he says in verse 8, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains all the suffering, chaos, corruption, sin, etc., all that pain, they're the beginning of the end. These are the birth pains. And that is why we do not hold to some utopian dream of a gilded age before Christ's return when the church is free from all suffering and sorrow. We're simply waiting for him to come. We're in that end age. We're in that time of labor. And some women, as you know, when they give birth, the labor is long. And for others, it is short. And Jesus is saying here that don't be concerned so much with how long these things take that characterize this time. Rather, focus on the fact that this is the beginning of the end. It is happening. The kingdom has already been conceived and soon it will be born. It is coming and it is here. Just wait. And so we go through the labor to get to the birth. Just as the temple, which seems so permanent, would be brought down so completely so that not one stair- stone would be left standing on another, so all the sin and the suffering, the death, will be done away. And the temple was destroyed, as we've already noted, that very way. In fact, the only thing that is left is the substructure. That wailing wall, if you go to see it in Jerusalem, that is not the temple walls. That's the substructure. There is not a stone of the temple's walls left standing upon another stone. It was completely destroyed. And that happened because, you see, Jesus is building a new temple. He's building his church, built on the foundation of his prophets. And he fits them together, all believers, as living stones, resting upon Christ, the chief cornerstone. Jesus has built a newer, better, more magnificent temple. And the destruction of the temple points to the fact that all these things that we believe to be so permanent in this world, they will end. They are in fact coming to their end. And once the labor pains are over, all the wars and the famines and the hurt and the sorrow, the earthquakes, the conflict, the chaos, the betrayal, it'll cease when our King comes. The stones of the temple of this world are coming down all around us. The king is on his way. That's the good news of the gospel. He is on his way. And so we ask ourselves then, well, how do we live in the light of this? And Jesus tells us in closing, he says to them, to his disciples, three things. And how they can live in the hope of the gospel. And in living in this knowledge that all of this is but temporary. And the first he says this to his disciples. He says, be vigilant. Keep watch. Pay attention to the fact that there are false Christs. Who preach false gospels. What's he say in verse 4? He says see to it that no one leads you astray. Pay attention. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked into believing that my kingdom is anything different than what I have taught you. Don't follow another gospel. In First John 4. Believers are instructed to try the spirits of the times. That is to say, the doctrine, the gospels, the philosophies, the thoughts, the ideas of the world in which we live were to test them and see whether they are from God or not. And how do we do that? Well, John explains it in in first John four. He says, by this, you know, the spirit of God. This is, this is the test. Every spirit, every idea, thought, philosophy that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's pretty simple. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, writes John. What you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The false Christs are here, just as Jesus said in Matthew 24. So be vigilant. Study his word. Know him through his word. Be vigilant. Secondly, he tells his disciples, be courageous. He says in verse 6, that when you hear the conflicts, the wars, the rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. After all, you know, these are normal. This is life. They are part of the beginning of the end. But you have a shelter in Christ Jesus who will keep you through all of it. Do not fear him, says Jesus, who can destroy the body, but fear him who would destroy both body and soul. In other words, rest in the grace of the gospel and be courageous. Do not fear Trust God, worship him, love your neighbor, which brings us to the third thing that he tells us to do. And that is to persevere verse 13, but the one who endures to the end, Jesus says will be saved. Now, an important distinction, notice that Jesus does not say you will be saved by your persevering or your enduring to the end. Mm Mm-mm. He doesn't say that he's simply stating a fact that those who are saved endure, they persevere, they will continue in the faith, walking in God's ordinary means of grace expressed through the worship of word and sacrament in his church. But that persevering isn't the thing that is saving them. It is the grace of God in Christ that is saving them. As Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ at his second coming. So keep the faith. Keep believing the gospel. When you see the evil and the sin and the suffering, even in your own life, keep trusting the Lord, keep doing the normal, ordinary things that he calls you to do in worship. And finally, he says, he says, be vigilant, be courageous, keep the faith. He says, preach the gospel. Verse 14 and this gospel, of the kingdom will be com- proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. After all the wars and the rumors of wars, the famine, the earthquakes, the tribulation, the suffering. Here's some good news. The gospel will be proclaimed. Proclaimed. In the whole world, the light of salvation will will shine in the darkest corners of the earth. All the chaos, conflict, and corruption, and confusion falling down around us cannot hide. It cannot bury the light of the gospel. Jesus tells us in John 16, Behold, the hour is coming and indeed has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. And will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the father is with me. I have said these things to you. That you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Yes the church at times in history gets scattered. Just as the disciples were scattered at Christ's crucifixion. And yes we will experience tribulation. As many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world certainly know, even this day, because the labor, the birth pains, it's not complete yet. But we take heart. We take heart as Jesus tells us to, because he has already overcome the world. Ours is not a gospel of defeat, but a gospel of victory. As I had an old College professor back when I was in a Baptist Bible college, tell me, don't worry when you see all the evil in the world. I read the last chapter of the Bible and we win because Christ won. It is the end of the world as we know it, but we are fine for our King has come and he is coming. And so be vigilant Be courageous, keep the faith, preach the gospel. The king is on his way. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that even as your first disciples were discouraged and troubled by the fact that the temple would be destroyed, by the fact that there'd be wars and tribulations, you gave them encouragement that... This is the end, that this world will not last, but your kingdom is forever. It is eternal. And we are already parted for, it, for you have come once already. You have established it. You are now continuing to build it through your gospel as it is proclaimed in every corner of this world. And so father, I pray that you would encourage us as you encourage them, that you would build up the faith of your people, that you would help us to not fear, but to live in courage. And in the victory that is ours in Christ already, looking forward to that end, And so we pray, Father, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly and deliver us. For we hope in a true and living Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.